Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. Exodus 19, verses 16 through 19 say, And on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like a smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. Up on verse 12, it says, Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not, hand, not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. Is this the God we serve? A God who would ask for innocent animals to be killed just because they ran away? What do we do with verses like this? What do we do with Hebrews 12? Is this our God? Is this the same God that we worship today? Or do we have two different gods depicted in the Bible, somehow split between the New and Old Testament? Do we serve the same God? Often we look at the God of the Old Testament as somebody who is awful, more than awesome who is full of justice and judgment and kills people. Sin sometimes is immediately met with in some kind of justice, death. In our little story of Set, and then we look at the God of the New Testament and we say he's a God of grace. He's God of love of mercy, of forgiveness. So do we have two different gods? Or is it the same God? Most of you would say, well, well, it's the same God. But perhaps he went through a personality change. Maybe the 400 years between uh, the end of the uh, 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 prophets and the beginning of Jesus' life, that silent period, maybe God rethought who he was. Maybe he does like businesses, you know, every so often, and they rename themselves, and they come out looking differently. 
I remember when Provia wasn't Provia. You know, all of a sudden we have this new name, this new company. It's got a new vision, a new... Is that what we got with God? All of a sudden he's like, oh man, all this stuff in the Old Testament, it didn't work. I need to be rebranded. Somebody loving and caring. Maybe people will come to me then. Is that what happened? Often we depict this whole change between God and the new and the old as, as part of, of this God of wrath in the Old Testament. And it, it, it's, it's a part of what is called the substitutionary atonement. If you get into theology, uh, uh, this is not fully what substitutionary atonement is, but this is what some people have come to believe in Christendom, especially in North America. That God was this God of wrath because of the sin that took place out here. And so he was always forced to pour out his wrath and show his wrath to the people of the Old Testament because of their sin. And he's a holy God and he can't touch sin and he can't be around sin. So he had to push and push and push people until Jesus came. And then he poured out his wrath on Jesus and Jesus appeased his wrath by dying on the cross. And that changed God to the point where now he can institute the age of grace. The dispensation of grace. Where now he's no longer of God of judgment, but he's a God of grace because his judgment has already been poured out on Jesus. I'll admit that's a bit of an unfair interpretation of the substitutionary atonement, but it is what some people believe to be true. We almost have like two gods, a rebranded God. That God's not a God full of justice anymore. That God's not a God who still meets out judgment. My friends, if that's true, then God's not holy. It's interesting. Um, I've had uh, kind of fun doing this. Um, one of my daughters, well, two of my daughters actually have been into, uh, Sarah was earlier, and now Kaylee is into the Percy Jackson series. Uh, Rick Rudin. I don't know if any of you know that series, but it is basically a nowadays, set in nowadays times, a novel on Greek mythology. All the gods have transferred over to the Western world because we're basically a Greek society. And instead of living upon Mount Olympus, they now live above the, uh, in New York, above the uh, state, Empire State Building. I had to think a little bit. And Percy Jackson is a demigod. He is the son of Poseidon, the god of the ocean. And his mother, which is a mortal. And it follows. He's a hero. The old type heroes like Hercules and uh, some of those. Now, I, I won't confess that I know Greek mythology because I don't. My understanding of Greek mythology is all from these books. But what I've picked up about Greek mythology is that these gods are not all powerful. They are powerful, but they're not all powerful. As a matter of fact, even all of the gods together are not all powerful. They still share power. 
And so they blow themselves up, they bolster themselves, they fight for position, they're always bickering amongst themselves, they're always fighting, they're always trying to get the upper hand, they have their own little realms, and buddy, if a demigod crosses that realm, you better watch out, because that god might just put you in prison, might kill you, or might inflict you with some kind of curse. So as demigods, you've got to cater to these gods, you've got to go through these gods, and you've got to... Either you butter them up by throwing sacrifices to them and try to make sure they're on your side, uh, 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 and, and then they will grudgingly somehow help you out. You can even trick gods into helping you out. If you're smart enough. But these gods are just always grudgingly. I mean, they don't like mortals. They don't like them because they're, they're so finite. Why waste time on a mortal when I'm going to be living all this time and they've only got this much time? Why waste time on a mortal? But yet they're so tied to the mortals. They rely upon the heroes to fight the monsters. They tend not to get involved if they don't have to get involved. And it's really interesting, though, if you stop believing in those gods they'll eventually fade away. And that's their biggest fear, is that the mortals will stop believing them. And they'll actually fade away. Now, how does that compare to our God? Our God's all-powerful, right? Uh, does our God have an ego? No, Morgan says no. God doesn't have an ego. God doesn't have an ego. Why doesn't God have an ego? He has no equal. Who is there to have an ego against? I mean, uh, it says in Isaiah 40, verse 18, it says, To whom will you liken God? To what image will you compare him? In verse 25, it says, To whom will you liken me? Or who is my equal? Asks the Holy One. God has no equal. Not only that, the Trinity, they don't bicker amongst themselves. They're not jockeying for position. They're not always trying to get, Hey, Joel, I'll help you out. You know, the Holy Spirit says, I'll help you out if you, you know, kind of make me prominent in your life, right? He said that to you, right? <laughs> you know? Jesus, I've got to be central. Jesus, uh, Jesus says, I, if I'm not central in your life, then, you know, you've got to view me better than God, right? He tries to get you. No. No, they're one. They don't bicker. Well, let's find a little other reality here. Does God need you? Does God need me? Joel says no. Do you guys agree with Joel? You agree with Joel? God doesn't need us. Why did he make us? Ah, oh, we do, don't we? But God doesn't need us, does he? He is perfect. He is full. He is himself. He doesn't need anything. He's already got it. He didn't need you. But you know what? You know what, Susanna? He wants you. That's big. 
because he never does anything for us begrudgingly. He never sits back and goes, here I gotta go rescue Dennis again. When will he ever learn? He knows I won't learn. He knows I'm a little thick-headed. In Pennsylvania Dutch, we say dick cuppy. Thick-headed. I don't get it. I don't get it. And God, help! You know? And God says, oh, okay, gee, I guess I have to. No, he willingly comes. We don't have to trick God into serving us somehow. Okay, God, I will read my Bible. I will do this, this, and this. And uh, I won't buy a Corvette because that's, you know, probably bad. Um, and, and if I do that, will you? We've never done that, have we? Have we ever bartered with God? Tried to trick him into serving us? You can't trick God. Because he wants to. He wants to do what's good. There's a verse that talks about what a good father gives. God gives us good things, right? And he doesn't need us. Our purpose here is to glorify God. That came out in a sermon a while back by Pastor Tyler. Our purpose here on earth is to glorify God. But why is that? Because God needs glory? That somehow I'm going to increase God's Shekinah glory by praising him? Little me? No. It gives us purpose. That's why. Our purpose is very simple. is to glorify God. To live out what God has given us to do. And Jay said this morning about worship, you know. A little bit of worship, we're going to... Yeah, what's more important? Yeah, what's more important than standing up here and singing is living your life out for God, right? That's our pure worship. He says, what is pure religion? Taking care the orphan, and the widow, and being unspotted, untainted by this world. That's perfect religion. That's living our purpose out. Jesus did that perfectly, right? Everything Jesus did that God told him to do and what God showed him to do and say. He did it perfectly. His life was perfect glory to God. Even his death. That's why his death was glory to God. Is because he did it in obedience to him. And he says, I am going to be glorified by my death, right? That cruel, awful death glorified God not because it was awful and cruel, but because it was done in obedience. It was what his life was to do. And it glorified God. So, is our God different from the old and the new? Is this the same God? Is the God of the Old Testament the same God as the new? Come on, guys, answer me. So the God that lives today is just as holy, just as just, just as judgmental, just as full of grace and mercy as he was thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, right? We believe that, right? Because I would challenge anybody who has a problem with that to view the lens of the Old Testament differently than what we have been taught mostly in Christendom. Because we go to the Old Testament, we open up the Old Testament believing it's full of rules, 
believing it's full of don'ts, believing it's full of judgment and legalism. But I dare you to read the Old Testament in the eyes of grace. The first murder, Cain. What should have God done with Cain? Killed him. Right? He deserved death by what God had said. What did God do? Put a mark on him and said, look, if anybody kills him, you'll be punished. Grace. Right? That's just one story. What about David and Bathsheba? What a slippery, dirty, sloppy story that one is. What did God do? He showed his son in that story, right? By allowing David's son to die in his place. Do you think that affected that father? Do you think that changed David? Yeah, a lot. Not that he ever was perfect, and we won't go into that. What is the difference then? What is the difference between the Old Testament and New Testament? What is the difference? It's the approach. It's how we approach God. God's the same God, but he has given us a different approach. That's what Hebrews 12 is about. We don't come to a mountain that's trembling. I don't know about you, but I've been in the church for 56 years. Yes, I'm 56 years old. I've been in church all my life. I have never come and seen the pulpit smoking. I never come with a cloud over top of the church thunder and lightning and the church itself shaking. Have you? How many churches have become like that? Well, you had to stay outside the church because the church was so holy you couldn't step in it. Only your pastor could and he did with trembling knees. You ever have that experience in your church? No. Why? Because our approach is different. I don't want to take too long here, but this is so important, I think, as we look at this. In the Old Testament, the ritual and the sacrifice brought forgiveness and temporary righteousness. We believe that, right? That's what happened when they took a goat or a lamb and sacrificed it for their sins. It brought forgiveness and temporary righteousness to that person, right? But annually, they had to do this over and over again, right? Why was that? Why was it only temporary? Okay, we have a lot of answers, but the one I believe is true is that God granted forgiveness to them. The blood of the goat didn't bring forgiveness. The ritual itself didn't bring forgiveness. It was granted by God. Neither did righteousness come just because they killed the goat. Okay? What it was, and if you remember, and I wish I had the scripture, and I don't. I didn't take time to look it up. Um, 
But there's a scripture in the New Testament. I'm not sure, maybe even some of you can tell me where it's at. Where it talks about Abraham. And Abraham was accredited righteousness. Does anybody remember why Abraham was accredited righteousness? He believed God. And he obeyed. His faith in obedience was accredited to him as righteousness. That's what happens with these sacrifices. When they believed that God would take their sin away by killing this animal in their place, then it brought them forgiveness and righteousness. They were able to stand rightly before God. They weren't going to be punished by the law. What they were doing was fulfilling the law, right? The law had all these things laid out. If you did this, this, and this, you needed to do this. And they fulfilled the law. It was given to them a righteousness. But it wasn't because they earned it. It was because God granted it on them, gave it to them. And it was their righteousness. It was accredited to them as righteousness, right? I know I'm wading a little deep here, but follow me a second. Because this is important to us. Because it's different now. Because Jesus fulfilled the law before he died. He fulfilled the law before he died. It says that in Scripture. He fulfilled the law and the prophets. He lived a perfect life. Let's make sure we understand, when Jesus was killed, they didn't kill an innocent man. They killed a perfect man. Big difference. Abel in the Old Testament, who was killed by his brother Cain, was innocent. But he wasn't perfect. And we'll read in this verse that that makes a difference. Abel's blood speaks differently than Jesus' blood because Jesus' blood was perfect. He had already filled the law, and then the law turned around and judged him. He stood before a Jewish Sanhedrin who the law empowered to bring life and death, and they found him guilty of what charge? Well, there was a charge against Jesus. Blasphemy. Death. Automatic death. And they judged him and they condemned him by the law. The law that he just fulfilled. The law that he had just served perfectly. They now judged him by that law, and they misjudged him, and that broke the condemnation of sin in the law. That broke the condemnation of sin. That's why in Romans 8 we say, there is what? No condemnation. Who are acting righteously, following the law perfectly, right? Is that what that verse says? Come on, church, what does it say? In Christ Jesus. See, we're not doing these things to gain our own righteousness. Being in Jesus Christ is not to gain our own righteousness. It's to have his righteousness. That's a big difference, my friends. We don't have to raise the goats and throw them up on the altar anymore. We don't have to avoid a special mountain 
where God dwells anymore. Why? Because God has opened it up and walked us into it in Jesus Christ's righteousness. Now we can stand in his presence. Now we can stand perfect. Not innocent. Perfect before God. Kathy, you're perfect before God. Not because of who you are. Because of who Jesus is. And our faith in him rebirths us. Ye must be born again. Brings us into new life. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And not only did God take care of our sins through Jesus Christ on the cross, he also took care of the curse of sin. Because again, the law said, cursed is anyone who hangs on the tree. But was Jesus cursed? No, he was perfect. Was he hung on a tree? Yes. And that broke the power of sin and death because Jesus fulfilled the law, took it, and hung it on the cross with him. Because what condemns us to death is not Satan. It's not evil. It is the law. The law is what condemns us to death. The law is what stands in judgment of us. Oh, Satan's our accuser. Satan loves to whisper to you, you're not good enough. Oh, you didn't do enough this week, did you? Uh-huh, that's why you got a flat tire. You little rebel, you. Just wait, God's going to get you good. That was just a little warning. Wait till you die. You won't be able to stand. You might as well just give it up. Or haven't you heard those whispers? Probably not. No, I, I'm a little weird that way. You know what devil likes to whisper to me? Oh, God loves people, yes, but he doesn't really especially love you. I don't know if you've heard that one before, but that's Satan's little lie to me. And I buy it sometimes. It's just like the gods. That's what gives him power. Satan will fade away in your life if you don't believe in it. Don't give his lies any power. Satan will fade away. That's why it's so important to know the truth. And the truth is we have a different approach. Let's hear this again. Let me just read the scripture again in the light of that. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to trumpet blasts or such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrible that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn that's jesus christ whose names are written in heaven hallelujah you have come to god the judge of all now listen to this to the spirits of the righteous that's us made perfect isn't that beautiful to jesus the mediator of a new covenant to the sprinkling of blood that speaks a better word than the blood 
of Abel. I want to turn to another passage. If you have it, I think it's worth the turning to. Luke chapter 13. This was another part of the lectionary. Um, Tyler gave me the option of preaching something I just wanted to preach about, something that was special to my heart, or to follow a scripture that was a part of the lectionary. I was really going to just preach on Jeremiah, and then I read Hebrews 12, and I said, boy, what do I do with this? I'll just put that one aside, and I'll concentrate on Jeremiah, and uh, Psalm 71, which was also a part of it, and uh, guess what? God brought me back to the scripture, so uh, here we are. But this is a beautiful scripture in Luke chapter 13. On the Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. Shabbat, Sabbath. What do you know about that? What day of the week was it? Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. That changed when Jesus rose from the dead. We started worshiping on Sunday. What else do we know about it? Weren't supposed to work. It was a day of rest, right? Okay. There's Jesus on the Sabbath teaching, which was not work. Uh, And a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. Think about that. 18 years she came to this synagogue. I believe she was faithful. I believe it took her a long time to get to the synagogue bent over. Because that's what it says. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. She came. Even though people said, man, do you know who she is? Do you know what she did? You see, they believed the reason she was crippled was because she sinned. This was the judgment of God on her. And to be honest, perhaps this was something that was an unforgiving spirit in her. Perhaps she had empowered a fear or something so deeply in her life that it began to physically cripple her. Have you ever seen that happen to somebody? They believe a lie so much, it steals their life. I'd like to blame all my aches and pains on that, but I can't. But anyways, but she was crippled. Listen to this. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said, here he is in the middle of his teaching. Hey, come here. I didn't do it that way, I don't think, but woman. When she got to him, he said, woman, you are set free from your infirmities. He hadn't healed her yet. Catch this. Because the next verse says he touches her. He delivers her from what has been a part of her life. He blames it on Satan a little later. It's called a spirit that's in her. He delivers her by his word, and then he touches her. He put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up. And I imagine her going like this. Praising God. I imagine there was a little jig in her, too. Can you imagine? Your back hurting for years. You can't straighten up, and all of a sudden, after 18 years, 
It's like a child's back. And here, I love the NIV for almost just because of this one word. They use it a lot. The next verse is indignant. (laughs) Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. Furious, burning inside were the synagogue leaders. Oh, what's he doing? He's screwing it all up. Healing on the Sabbath. And he know that's work. Oh. But catch this. Who do they address? Do they address Jesus? I think they've been down this road with Jesus before, right? They had heard Jesus don't care about healing on the Sabbath. They look at the people, the ones who believe them, the ones they have power and control over and say, don't you come on Sunday to be healed. Don't do it, Joel. You want to face what's going to happen if you come on Sunday to be healed? You have six days to come to Jesus. Why come to him on the Sabbath? Shame on you. Don't you know better? You're making him work. He ain't bright enough, but surely you are. Duh. Come on. Get your act together. Be good little Jews. What does Jesus answer him? Hypocrites. <laughs> I love Jesus. I love Jesus. He backs away from a fight every time. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll try not to do this anymore. Come on, you hypocrites. Don't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox and donkey from the stall and lead him and give him water? Every night they would tie their ox and their donkeys up. They made sure on Friday night they did it before sundown because then they wouldn't have to work. Sundown was the start of the Sabbath. So they'd tie them up because they didn't want any animals or thieves getting them. But of course they were thirsty and they needed water for the day. So in the morning they would take them and lead them to the trough and let them drink. Now, I don't know, I think they took him back possibly in the stall. But technically, by the law, that was work. And he says, you do that every Sabbath. You lead your donkey and your ox to water. Matter of fact, they probably would live most of the day. They only had to live till sunset. They probably lived till then without water, right? But who wants to take a Sunday afternoon nap when your donkey's going, because he's thirsty? Okay, they broke the law for convenience sake. But they all did it. Excuse a little Amish joke. I don't know how many of you know Amishmen. But do you know why you always take two Amishmen uh, fishing with you? Because if you only take one, they'll drink all your beer. In other words, they're not going to drink in front of each other because they'll be told on. You get it? So if they all agreed to do this, then it was okay. It was socially acceptable to take your donkey and your ox out because the leaders of the synagogue did this. It's socially okay. We don't have anything like that in our church, do we? We'll think about that one. Maybe not. I don't know. But it was socially okay. Listen to this. Then should not this woman, a daughter of 
daughter of Abraham. Now, I think he's talking not only because of her lineage, but because of her faith, because she was faithful, and that was accredited to her as righteousness. Here's a daughter of Abraham whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years. Shouldn't she be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? Shouldn't she find rest from her infirmities on the day of rest? Shouldn't she be able to give glory to God on the day that we set aside to rest and give glory to God? Shouldn't I lead her to water? Shouldn't I allow her to drink of eternal water on the very day that God rested? And she can find rest for her soul. Isn't that beautiful? And when he said this, all his opponents were humiliated. Okay, I don't think Jesus' intent was to humiliate, to get a hand up on his opponents. He had offered them truth. But they walked away from it. They felt humiliated. They felt ashamed. It was a power game for them. It was a power struggle, and they wanted to keep their power. And this, but... It says, the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. People were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Does anybody remember a year ago on this very Sunday? Now, the date would be tomorrow's date, but on this Sunday... What happened a year ago? Does anybody remember? Yeah! <laughs> and they're still here! Hallelujah! It was a good Sunday, wasn't it? Amen. Amen. Baptismal Sunday. Do you know where I was? Yeah. In the hospital. My daughter was supposed to be one of them that were baptized, but she chose not to, and we baptized her a little while ago, which was awesome, but because I was in the hospital. I had come through one of the hardest weeks of my life. I lay in the ICU, and you've heard some of this story before, but I lay in the ICU feeling like God had left me. He was over in that room over there. I knew he was there, but I didn't feel him close to me at all, at all. And it shook me. It shook me. I was full of fear. I believed I might die. I believed I may not ever walk out of that hospital. And God wasn't close to me. God didn't comfort me. Until Sunday. Until these young people were being baptized. And I sat by my window two days out of the ICU with my phone playing praise worship, my hands raised in my seat. I couldn't sing because I had no breath to sing, but man, my heart was singing because God was, is 
the last part of these verses in Hebrews 12. My Bible's like my wife's Bible, keeps losing things. Verse 25 says, See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. That's Jesus. Jesus, the word, came to speak. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we, will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? That's Jesus. Jesus came from heaven. Jesus walked this earth. He speaks. He still speaks today. Are you hearing his voice? Do you hear what he says? Are you believing his truths or are you believing the lies of the gods of this age, of the spirits of this age, of Satan himself? That at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he promises once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicates the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God, accepting what reverence, accepting with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. My friends, I do not want a God who is not holy. I do not want a God who is not just. I do not want a God who is not full of judgment. I do not want a God who is willing to compromise his holiness for somehow helping out a human race. I want a God who is perfectly just and holy and full of glory and power and might, but equally has mercy and grace and love. Because if he doesn't have one, he doesn't have the other. You do not have grace without justice. You do not have love without judgment. You do not have mercy without justice. Holiness. If we want to deny the God of the Old Testament, we deny the God of the New Testament. If we want to deny the God who judges and condemns, we must deny the God who is full of mercy and grace and so my question to you is twofold today. Number one, what shakes you? What shakes you? That's the negative side. What can't be shaken in you? What can't Satan shake in you? What can't God shake in you? What can't circumstances shake in you? Perhaps you've been coming and you need a healing for years and years and years and you've been faithful to the gospel. And you see some people come and receive healings and yours hasn't come yet. God will heal. He's not healing He's not not healing you because of who you are, but because of who he is. Because he knows what you need. I don't know if that brings you comfort. 
but maybe a few more mortal things in our life need to be shaken away before we can stand before Jesus and actually receive our healing. I don't know. I can tell you I've been shaken this week. I've been shaken a couple times in the last several months. It's because of my thick-headedness. I need a healing, my friends. I do. I stand before you needing a healing. I'll be honest, I do. If you want to know what it's about, I'll more than gladly share afterwards with you. No. I do have pride, but not in this. <laughs> what shakes you? What doesn't shake you? And are you waiting on a healing? God and Father, you have blessed me so much with your word. Lord God, just the whole idea that I cannot bring my righteousness, no matter how much I am faithful to you, it's not my righteousness that I can build and hold on to. I can't. But God, equally, I can't trick you into serving me, and I can't make you begrudgingly help me. <laughs> you love me. And you do it because you want to and I thank you for that I thank you for the Mount Zion the city of God a place to dwell not only in the future a kingdom not only of the future but a kingdom of the presence in which I can come and whether I experience you or not I can know you are there move in us Lord Jesus may we hear your voice May we obey your voice and may we count upon your righteousness so that we do not have any condemnation. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.